Welcome to episode 24 of MADE, the podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're going to talk about the maker movement being good for architects. Let's continue the conversation. Welcome back everyone to MADE. Behind this microphone is Claudia Berrigan. Hi, everyone. And I also have Ray Peña. How you doing? And I am Jose Valcarso. We're back and we're talking architecture. We've talked a lot about making <laughs> the last few weeks. So we figured we'd go a little bit architecture, but still linked to making. Um, but how are you guys doing? How have you guys been this week? Pretty good. And you guys? Yeah, I've been pretty... Pretty easy, taking it easy, not, not, nothing too much. Work's been busy with, we interviewed somebody today. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, a bit into it. Take guy. a little bit off your plates? Yeah, but I, I don't want to get too much into it, but the guy was a bit intense in a, in a reserved sort of way. It's hard to explain, I'll tell you off air. <laughs> you know, that, that, that sounds very complicated, intense in a reserved sort of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll have to tell you about it off air. Um, All right. But yeah, you know, hopefully take a little bit of our plate because there's, there's just two of us designing and we've got about 20 some projects and that we're doing and they're different phases, but just two of us that are really working on the drawings and the design of the houses. So it's a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. How about you have the, the shop? Oh, uh, well, it's, uh, it's doing pretty good. Uh, you know, we've, we always are dealing with new and different uh, projects. And our, uh, our as, a, as a matter of fact, today, you know, our new building that we put up, yeah, uh, they were trenching in for the gas lines today. Huh. So we're getting closer. Uh, right now, you know, right now the the progress has slowed down a little bit because uh, the general contractor is done with the job, and we are take we have taken over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have to put in the electrical and the uh, the overhead doors, the lighting, mm-hmm. the heating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the little bits and pieces that have to be done. Yeah. But uh, yeah. the building is up. It's closed in. Mostly just needs the uh, the doors in. And uh, I'm hoping that we'll have this done by the end of the year. Hmm. Okay, very cool. Yeah. yeah um, it's funny because the, the main structure went up so quick. It's, it did. It slowed down from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, very cool. Well, and Clyde, you've been busy with meetings and statehood that you're going to tell us about later. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I also went to a um, festival on the river, oh. which is really cool. Uh, I was at Bleedersburg, um, and it talked a lot about poop, <laughs> which oh, was cool. <laughs> Basically, like, you know, your pet's poop going into the 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 watersheds and eventually ending up in mm. Anacostia River or the river and then, you know, like, the fish that you end up fishing and stuff like that, but it was cool. It was really educational, and um, and I got to meet a, some really good people that I actually met in my childhood at some point, which is mm. really cool. Pretty I had cool. fun. Nice. Well, I mean, let's get to our topic. But this week is going to be interesting topic because you know, as people know, we've all gone to architecture school, so it's sort of a, a topic that's I guess close to all our hearts. So, so I think it'll be a good discussion. So. We're gonna skip news again. I know we've uh, we've skipped news for a few weeks now, but I think we're gonna. It's because next week we're gonna go ahead and do an episode all about just news stories that we find. So you you guys will get your fill of news for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but we'll go back to sort of trying to have at least a couple of news stories before getting to the main topic. But yeah, for this week, let's just skip right over news and go right to our main topic. Great. Cool. Great. All right, well, let's just get to our main topic now, and uh, we're going to be talking about why the maker movement is good for architects. Um, so I think any anybody that's sort of a, a listener to the podcast knows that all three of us went to architecture school together, and that's sort of where we all met. So we all have an architecture background, and you know we're all involved with making now, so I think it's a natural topic for us to talk about, and we're responding to this article, which is an article you found, Claudia. Yes. Um, yeah, you want to tell us a little bit about what the article says first, and then we'll get into the full-on conversation? 
Yeah, sure. So the article is a little bit uh, old. It mm-hmm. dates back to 2011. Um, but what I was really surprised is that the content of the article doesn't necessarily, it still seems quite relevant. Mm-hmm. Perhaps maybe the pricing is the only thing that went, and let me, well, let me go ahead and explain what I mean by pricing. So um, it basically is from the perspective of, a, of an architect and, you know, like the idea that we're con- architects were constantly using 3D printers and um, specifically 3D printers and anything to do with modeling, actual modeling and making and prototyping as part of our general process. And, um, and all of a sudden, making became mainstream. Mm-hmm. And people started asking us architects, hey, you guys do 3D printing, what do you guys do with uh, modeling, like computer modeling and stuff like that, because, you know, we all do CAD and stuff. And, you know, friends of ours were asking, that's the idea behind this article, mm-hmm. and that's the impetus of writing this. And then the, the, um, the author starts talking about, you know, well, how... 3D printing and the making movement uh, became more accessible, and that's the reason accessible to mass to the masses mainly by all of these materials, uh, all of these products that are available, um, and the fact that they're the cost of them are lower. So it talks about uh, products like Shopbot, um, talks about like 3D printers, and a, you know a variety of 3D printers, and um, and then also talks about um, the software that is used for making 3D models, mm-hmm. right? And how that's also been more uh, democratized. So, mm-hmm. like, you can actually find them cheap or free. And they put open source. And, and open like source yeah. and stuff like that. But all of those items that he's talking about are are generally still available and have only gotten better, yes, and the prices have gone down. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily see that anything new, necessarily bigger or newer, has come out of this. Mm-hmm. And again, this is dating back to 2011. And then the idea is like, well, what does this all mean for architects? And it basically ends up with the conclusion that this is great for us because we're the ones who have been doing this for a very long time. And there's so many more benefits to us because it's now more avail- readily available. Mm-hmm. And we should be the ones who are um, taking full advantage of this, mm-hmm. of that movement. Right. So that's that's the gist of it. It also talks about uh, the, the impact of the making movement at universities and how um, universities have become this um, fabrication labs, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And that um, for new architects who are planning, new students who are trying to plan to get into the architecture field, uh, to study their architecture, now you have a uh, variety of places that you can choose based on their fabrication labs. Mm-hmm. And that has become like a thing, a new thing to shop for when you're shopping for schools. Like which one has a better fabrication lab than another? Which school has a better one than the other? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting article. And I mean, I think the concept behind it to me sounds interesting. What do you, what do you think about, you know, in general terms, Ray? about the article well uh i found it quite interesting and you know it's funny that when we say oh it's an old article uh, you know it's only five five uh years ago um the the reality is technology does change but uh, even though the author uh, i think his name is federico negro mm-hmm. uh ha- mentions specific technologies and a few companies here and there uh really uh the technology that uh, he mentions, it's something that's been around a while and it's still in, in place. And, and like Claudia said, the price has come down a bit. But I think what he really touches on is the the missing piece of the puzzle. I know we've mentioned this in, uh, in previous episodes, that uh, having a 3D printer is not enough. It is it's just the first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to, of course, be able to make a model to be able to import into the printer. And in order to make a model, you have to have the uh, ability. And uh, like you mentioned you know, with us, uh, we have extensive experience with uh, 3D uh, drafting and modeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it becomes a very natural transition to use those skills and then 
create a model for 3D printing. So uh, he does touch up on that and mention that the architects are already well suited. They already have those skills uh, from using different types of uh, 3D modeling software and, and uh, drafting software. Uh, and, he, and he mentions a few of the, of the free ones that are available, like SketchUp. That I think all three of us have experience with SketchUp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's a very nice, user-friendly, uh, intuitive modeling software package, mm. completely opposite uh, from those uh, packages like FormZ and SolidWorks and uh, just to name a few. Those, those are very complicated, and you can't just jump right into it. So uh, the the fact that architects specifically and other design professionals, and he does mention engineers, are already in, in a place to make that jump and that transition to use this existing technology you couple that with the fact that it's really quite affordable to get into, and now you've opened up uh, the the uh, portfolio of services you can offer. Uh, and, of course, the fact that all these things are available uh, does open the doors for, like Claudia said, democratizing the entire uh, uh, movement so that your average person can get into it. You don't have to have those highly uh, specialized skills um, but having them makes it a whole lot easier. Yeah, I mean, and I, I agree. I think the barrier of entry has lowered itself to such a degree that it's easier for anybody to use it, so it makes sense for the architecture firms and architecture schools to get into it. Um, I think because architecture school, and I think most people don't realize this, is so much more of more of a design school. You know, a lot of people, whenever I tell somebody, well, I'm an architect, they always talk about, like, oh, how much math you must have done and how much this and that. <laughs> and, like, yeah. they, I don't think most people recognize that it's a design, it's really a design field. It, it's, yeah. it, we went to school for five years for design, really. Yeah, well, um, you know, some people find it mysterious. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think because it is a design field, then all of these tools are there for assisting the design process it's a natural marriage right yeah um yeah yeah. and in the end of course you know uh you can have the printer you can have the software you can have all those skills but but you have to have that ability to design Mm -hmm. the product or the object or the tool or the machine or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. yeah Right. The one thing I did disagree with you on is about SketchUp being, and maybe we should at some point think about doing an episode about different um, software. Maybe we, we have a, a it's whole really episode that, yeah. that just talks about different softwares. Because I don't necessarily agree that SketchUp is that intuitive. Oh, you don't think so? When you start <laughs> out, I, I know that uh-huh. that's how they that's how they've sort of positioned it. But I mean, we'll get into that at some other point, I guess. Yeah. It's it's just that I think some of the other software. If maybe it wasn't, if it was a little bit simpler to use, would be more intuitive just because of the way it works than, say, SketchUp. But um. well, what I found interesting about what Ray said, and I would like to expand on it a little bit more, just to sort of like define what he said when when Ray mentions um, opening up your our portfolio to new services. What I think you meant was that um, now because because there are all of these tools and there's this sort of like maker movement already in place now in 2016 that's thriving Mm -hmm. that opens up a whole new area for our for us architects that we can go into Mm -hmm. without necessarily being um uh being attached to the architecture firm or the architecture office so we can use our own um, skills in design, like Jose mentions, mm-hmm. like designers, to provide these services to makers in the maker movement. And um, yeah, I remember that. I uh, cannot remember the the. And during the make New York Maker Fair, when mm-hmm. we saw the that that um, I forget that shop that does. Um, they basically have their own manufacturing for 3D items mm-hmm. for different people. So, um, and then um, I think that's Shapeways. Shapeways, yeah, it was Shapeways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually, they have it. They they in this article they mention Shapeways. Mm-hmm. Sorry, and um, that's a way of us designers being able to go in into this field mm-hmm. 
and provide our services. So it expands our portfolio individually, mm-hmm. not tied yes. to the architecture firm. Because I think that's the one of the big the pieces missing in this article. And you know, like I having worked at a large firm, and I know some of our listeners know are also architects, and they probably have their own experiences. Um, you know, not everyone is doing prototyping in a firm. Right. Not everybody's doing Rhino or using Rhino or three D modeling or doing that. I, you know, that would be like the perfect. That would be utopia mm-hmm. architecture yeah. for designers. And actually very few are selected to do that work. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the, the atrocity. Is, I, I'll even go, go to that level of calling it atrocity because you have great <laughs> designers that are not able to do all this work. All this is but, I mean, that's a thing at a large firm that happens either way. Uh, you're going to find a lot of people that get put on those jobs of they do the rhino and they do the prototyping and the modeling. That one experience doing the construction drawings and they don't get to yeah. because you're good at this thing so you're put in that position but at smaller firms you have the same thing because you don't you do. have the resources you know you, so you end up facing the same the same um atrocity because you, now now the excuse is not oh well we don't have the, the the funds or the resources to have a fabrication lab in our in our firm um so therefore we can't do that work that's mm-hmm. extra work mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's yeah. completely right. At, at my old firm, not the one that I'm currently working at, but the one I was working at before, for us to do a 3D model for the client, for them to see the, the residence, it was an additional charge. You know, it wasn't built in as part of the design process. He mm-hmm. had made it a model of the, the billing, basically, because the billing was important. You know, we were a small, a really small firm <laughs> at that point. You know, three of us at one point, two of us sometimes. It's just the way it was. So, but yeah, it was a, it was an additional service, right? Yeah, but I mean, a lot of firms that I've worked at firms before that it wasn't an additional service. Three D modeling was part of the design process. You know, when I was designing theaters, we had to do that. Yeah. So, um, I think so. Before I guess we get too far into how it works at an at a firm, let's talk about it a little bit when it comes to school itself, right? So I think at school it's a natural merging the maker and the architect is a natural thing because you're having to make models, you're having to do a lot of this prototyping that, you know, you maybe are not going to get to do it at a firm. So I think that marriage is pretty straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. You guys would agree? You you agree with that, Claudia? I do, um, especially since, you know, like even from this article that it's saying that, and this we didn't see in our generation of going to school, the, the fact that fabrication labs are now like a thing to market to 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 promote a university to make it you know like more um, desirable to mm. new future architecture students right and we didn't really see that part of it um, but I think well I mean I don't know that it depends on your process with selecting an architecture school but you you would want to see what kind of shop they had in order for you to make That's models true. and stuff like that. Yeah. So it was a different degree. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, the school that we went to, uh, they they started one of those little fabrication um, shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I think, the very, either my last semester, my last two semesters there. And it was a nice, wonderful shop that nobody was allowed to use. Mm-hmm. The most beautiful shop, all these tools that nobody was allowed to use. Because they haven't figured out how they were going to allow people to use it. Brand new, very convenient location. Empty and unused for at least one semester and possibly two. Mm -hmm. uh, Until they figured out the bureaucracy behind how to get students access without having any liability. But I think uh, it's it's an interesting sign of the times when you mentioned that, you know, as part of the... Of the uh, lure of you know of the school is to have this gem of a lab that uh, that's put you know potential students can covet. Uh, it is interesting that in this short period of time between when we graduated and now that it has become it has shifted so much and it's become part of uh, that attractive um, quality that the school may have. Right. And you know making models was is. A natural part of architecture so it makes sense to have the ability to uh, make these things and expand the materials other than just chipboard 
chipboard and, ba- and balsa wood. Right. Yeah. yeah, a foam core or whatever you could find laying around the studio at that point. Exactly. Yeah. What was his name? Scavenger Dale. He used to. <laughs> we had, <laughs> we had a, a guy. He graduated the year before I did. And he would just wander around the studio seeing if anybody had some scrap materials. And he, oh. every once every, like every once once a week he would be walking around looking for for scrap materials to to make a model out of. So you guys called him Scavenger Dale. Him Scavenger Dale. His name was Dale, so we called him Scavenger Dale. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know that that's that's what it was. I think things have not just shifted to you're using PLA and other materials to make these models that you yeah, have to make. CNC routers and all kinds right. of stuff. So I think, okay, so I think we're in agreement that it makes sense for the architecture school to go through this process of the maker and the architect. The question is, are the architecture students seeing it as making? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if they're seeing it as making or as, because, uh, you know, you can love what you do or just do something because you have to. Right. And it, it, it's hard for me to imagine somebody's going to go to architecture school and and not love having to design and, and build something. Right. Uh, but yeah, it'd be an interesting thing to see. I think I think we have to kind of ask any student now that might be an architecture student, see what they think about it. Now, it, what, what I'd like to add is even though when we were graduating, it was something that was just starting, something just coming in. Uh, have you guys ever taken uh, like a studio uh, art class at all? Where you were? Yeah, yeah, I took a bunch of uh, art classes as my electives rather than taking astronomy as a, and, or yeah. whatever. I took I took the art classes. Yeah, that's what I did too. Yeah. So when you when I like I took a ceramics class, I took a couple of sculpture class classes. Um, what was interesting is that that was one hundred percent part of the curriculum was to make something. Mm-hmm. In ceramics class, you were getting dirty with clay and using uh, you know, the different machines. Uh, we used to actually have to mix our own clay from scratch. Mm-hmm. So they would order the, the raw materials and we had to make our own blends, right. which was a, a, a very nice experience. And we would you know, fire it and all that. And of course, in sculpture class, you had uh, uh, welders and, and all, you know, we even did casting. We did aluminum castings. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting that it, for art, the idea that making is ingrained in, in the physical um, uh, representation of your idea as part of the curriculum has been going on for a long time. It, uh, this fab lab, which is a you know recent development, uh, has really taken off tremendously. And I, I think it's I think it's a I wish I had it when when we were in school mm-hmm. instead of just looking at this beautiful room with a locked door that you can't you can't get access to yeah, and i mean it definitely affects the design in that if you're able to 3d print something you know there were multiple times where i had to make a model of something and i had to make it simpler or slightly different because i knew i had to model this somehow <laughs> you know and yeah. i didn't have the ability of making those shapes or whatever out of cardboard yeah. or chipboard or whatever so it's like so um, it's interesting. I think it was during the National Maker Fair. Mm-hmm. We had um, Jose and I were like walking around, and we saw like I'm I'm a I'm an alumni of University of Maryland College Park. So they had this this one table about terrapin works, mm-hmm. and um, so we went and asked them. Do you remember? Like they had this, like little mm-hmm. like stickers and stuff, and we asked them what it was about. Uh, I thought it was a fab lab. Mm-hmm. And it was within the School of Engineering at the University of Maryland. Again, University of Maryland being a public university, it does, and a research public university, it does receive a lot of funding from from the state and also some federal grants, right? And apparently this organization, this student-led organization, received a decent amount of money to be able to build um, themselves like a, a, a an innovation center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's specifically looking at 3D uh, machines, so maker bots and um, all kinds of different equipment, um, inclusive of the form form makers and everything else. But then, because it's a student-led organization, one of the things that they were supposed to do is that they are to, they they just, they decided to do, and the reason why they got the grant is that they were going to share the space with all of the other uh, university programs, mm-hmm. so that it's not just 
um, while it may be housed in the School of Engineering, other you know, other programs can use it. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it kind of ties into what Ray was saying that, you know, like he was able to use a lot of cool um, art, art tools mm-hmm. um, within the art school program, right? And it's completely separate from the architecture school, for example. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, you know, from our experience that we had this shop that nobody could use, not even other people from other programs. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like putting a, a twist on that, you know, the fact that it's making it available to for everyone in the, in the university to use. And the way that they have the equipment, they actually put the equipment in different places throughout the university, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, they also offer a tour, they have a tour request so you can do tours of this place. We should maybe think of doing yeah, one of those and seeing what they do. But a lot of it is about prototyping, and they also connect it to jobs too. Um, so what jobs are available for students once they, once they know how to use these machines, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool too, because then you it, it's really a cross um, cross learning environment. Okay, I mean, I think this is, yeah, it's, it's great. I guess the question still becomes, do the students see themselves as makers? I think this particular one from the engineering department did. I I still think that because architecture school is such a design-driven school that I don't think they really see themselves as makers as they see it much as part of the process of the design. Um, I, I yeah. you know, and I worked, we have interns at the office. We had one that's left recently to go back to school for the, her last year. And one that's currently part time as he goes to school, and I tell you, neither of them ever talk anything about making or necessarily knew oh. that much about three D printing or anything along those lines. Um, Interesting. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. I don't know the the current student. I don't know. Do you know what or what do you think about it, Ray? Well, it's uh, I can't speak about uh, you know any of the students because uh, the, at the last firm that I was at, uh, you know, everybody had experience with making models, and mm-hmm. and they didn't feel one way or the other about it. So whenever it came time to making models, I always ended up volunteering. And after a while, um, I didn't even have to volunteer anymore. Mm-hmm. They say, hey, you want to make this model? I go, sure, I'll, I'll make this model. Mm-hmm. So I found it to be, for me, much more enjoyable to make the model. Um, unfortunately, it's because you're working on the model, you're not working on the design. So you become distance from, from the design. And... Basically, you know, whenever I was doing that, I was just another tool, uh, just you know, solidifying the design. So you know, when you when you when you go into architecture schools, you do that because you want to design. That's what you want to do. Um, but uh, for me, the making is part of that. Making the models is part of that whole design process. And I think you would, you would agree with that too, because as you're making the model, you discover that oh, you know what. My my design has got a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Or here's another opportunity. Let me explore this a little bit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mo- where where sketching is experiments on paper, modeling is you know experiments with your hand in three dimensional space. Right. And and in my feeling is the the 3D model in the computer doesn't capture that as well as an actual model. Mm-hmm. Well, and from the point of view, I think. It, of the client, I think the 3D model on the computer is still a hard, harder thing for the client to understand, and it is a physical model sitting in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they can imagine themselves in it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so let's transition a little bit into the into the firm part of you once you've graduated from school, because um, then we can talk a little bit about what our experience has been in that side of it. I know at the current office that I'm at, we are looking more at trying to move into the virtual reality part of it, again, the virtual reality goggles or whatever, for the computer models, more so than buying the 3D printers, which are much cheaper, to do the physical model. You know, which is, again, sort of an interesting thing. Virtual reality, I think it's very cool and very coming back, but it's sort of the opposite of the making the model yourself or making the prototype, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, you know, it makes you wonder, at least it makes me wonder, is how forgiving is the client? If they're in a 3D virtual reality um, envelope, are they more, uh, are they expecting more pseudo-realistic 
representation or will they be willing to accept the same kind of abstraction that you get from a model to represent the actual object? I wonder how forgiving the client is when it comes to those virtual reality virtual reality environments. What do you think, Gloria? No, that's a great question that Ray poses because it's so much about the client's experience, which I think it's like it's selling a vision, but it, you know, selling a vision to in three D. Hmm. Like a lot of the work that I was doing was um, in urban design and planning is selling the vision of a, of a master plan of like, you know, the bigger picture. Hmm. Um, and then also creating the, the setting for, for the client's, um, investment. Hmm. Right. So you, you like literally creating the setting, you know, what will this be? Um, and I, I, it seems like virtual reality takes away a lot of it. It's the virtual part that bothers me about it mm -hmm. because it, it takes away reality from the client, which in re, which is ultimately what they will get is a real product. Mm -hmm. And, you know, taking someone, taking a client through all of those um, complex concepts of visioning ideas you know, it's, it's difficult. Like a lot of the times I would find myself with our clients that I quickly wanted to go into SketchUp, into a 3D model, right? Because to me that was like, okay, well that's what we're gonna do anyways. So we might as well do that. Um, and then we can render it, which is great. And then we'll have this great, beautiful posters of render stuff. And my bosses would always tell me, well, no, let's actually not already sell something finished. Mm -hmm. Let's do sketches first. Because then we're not selling them something that's real. Right. And I think virtual reality is even another step beyond that. And, you know, for urban planners or designers, for urban designers, I don't, I find it, like, hard to see that they would be using that now. But I wonder if they are. I really need to talk to more of my urban designer friends and see if that's what they're going to. I know, I mean, I... I a lot of architecture firms are thinking about going that direction more just the virtual reality, especially as you use software like Revit, where you're building a 3D model of the house as you're designing it. I guess the house, you can do buildings, you can do whatever. Um, as you're building a 3D model of the building, as you're designing it and as you're doing the drawings, it almost makes sense. The reality of it, though, is you can take that 3D model, simplify it fairly quickly, and make a th a, have a 3D print of it by the next day just as easily. Right? You leave it printing overnight, it'll be there the next day. Just as cheap, too. inexpensive now. Cheaper, because, you know, the thing that's not mentioned about virtual reality is the expense of it, right? You have to have a, I don't want to call it a supercomputer, but you have to have a computer that can handle that sort of thing. And, the and you, you need cheaper. to model the environment, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and like you said, you know, to what level of realism? When you're working in Revit, you sort of, if somebody could imagine a... Not even black and white. So if you're in a space that's not, it's black and white, but the, the surfaces don't have any, any texture really. Like yeah, I would say it's cartoony. The Revit yeah, is cartoony. Yeah. It's yeah, especially when you're looking at three D. You know, it's great that you can do the three D views while you're making this thing, but it's like this sort of, it's like living inside of the drawing really, you yeah. know, and it would be very disorienting. Yeah. For somebody. So. It's a great tool, I just don't know that it lends itself to this virtual reality part of it. But I know people yeah. are moving in that direction. Yeah, and you know, we're probably a good 10, 15 years away before that's really uh, viable as a as an everyday tool. I don't think so. Not really, right? You don't think is that no, much? No, I mean, mm -hmm. I just, you know, when you do a quick search on Google, because I was thinking this would be a great topic to talk about mm. yeah. um, for us, both using virtual reality as a tool for design and then as a tool to envision, mm. right? To For your clients to envision something. Um, and it's filled, I mean, easily. Like, from the first search, you can find tons of connections within architecture. A lot of articles that have been written about this. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are seeing virtual reality as either going to be a gaming platform or it's yeah. going to be used for something like this for envisioning a space which lends itself directly to architecture. 
Yeah, and that's and that's my uh, my focus is for architecture purposes. Right. You know, being able, like you mentioned, to to uh, have a computer that's powerful enough and create a model, mm -hmm. because as you know, you're always under the gun. You right. <laughs> there's always a deadline, and you are always almost missing your deadline. Mm -hmm. So with the clock ticking, you know, at what point will the the technology of virtual reality for the application of the architectural model uh, be really a viable product to engage the client because as you find that the client says well how much is that going to cost me well you want a, a vr environment that's going to be another fifty thousand dollars oh no you know what that's okay i don't want it mm -hmm. but when you say oh you like this we'll have it ready for you tomorrow mm -hmm. that is a whole different ball game right. you know yeah and, and from just you know what's out there and if if it follows the same thing as rendering as 3d modeling and rendering like that process, it all gets sent to China anyways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so more than likely right now, like, you know, if you look at some of the virtual reality companies are in the UK and probably China as well, mm -hmm. which the cost of that goes down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'll tell you this, in the time that I was, when, when I started school, which started architecture school, which let's just say 98, 99, around there, Right. Well, I was really. I started working while I was going to school at that point, right around '99. All of the renderings at that point were being done by hand as watercolor. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. But by the time I graduated from university three years later, we were doing pretty much everything in computer rendering. You know, three years earlier, you had told somebody in the firm that they would have said, "No, I have this guy that that does everything in watercolor, and he does it yeah. in a couple of days. It's it's done." So it's quickly changing, and I know virtual reality. Again, we, I think we've talked about it. It's easy to laugh at it because you know, I remember the was it Johnny Mnemonic or whatever uh, the Lawnmower Man. Yeah, Lawnmower Man, or and you, we laugh at it because it was oh, that's crazy. But it's I think this time it might be for real, much more real than you know even three D movies or whatever. Yeah. So definitely. Well, you know, it's funny. I remember in school we used to do our our three D renderings. And uh, it's kind of like a 3D printing. You would set up your scene, set the computer, and come back eight, ten hours later. Right. Yeah, you would just leave <laughs> and it. And it would screen. take forever to render yeah. one scene. Yeah. And nowadays, you can do it in five minutes. Yeah. It just renders. Yeah. Wow, this is really cool, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think definitely. I think. So I mean, I guess the question then becomes: yeah. Is virtual reality? You know, because we're, we're talking about architect as, as, as a maker is virtual reality taking some of this away yeah. right it seems like it will um, but like everything i mean we've covered stories here about people that are going into their parking lot and, and taping out the outlines of the building so that the, the person can the physically walk it physically see yes. it right yeah, yeah so there's always the throwback to it like i personally think the architect needs to look at it himself or herself more as the maker and yes. look at some of these option but i mean what do you guys think what do you, what do well, you think nobody okay. ever says they want fewer options you know right. everybody wants more options so yeah i think um it's probably worth a, a discussion onto itself because mm -hmm. it is i think a more complicated uh, discussion hmm. yeah and i also think it depends on resources like that's the biggest it always mm -hmm. comes down to money yeah. right and then well, it depends on what can you afford and what can the client afford and what can and what capacity yeah. do you have in your firm? And in, as an architect, what capacity do you have to be able to do, you know, one or the other or the other or the other? Mm -hmm. What I definitely say is that more and more, there are no excuses for architects coming out of school not necessarily understanding how to be a maker or their role in the making process because now it's accessible even to the degree of virtual reality. Mm -hmm. So while before you could always be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an analog architect, I'm an old school architect, or like I appreciate the drawing, you know, which we all do. Mm -hmm. And I can only think of like Dr. Mega right now. Mm -hmm. um, then the new architects, like 2016 new graduates, you know, like they should, they really don't have like an excuse to say, well, I, I didn't, I didn't use that. Right. 
Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's funny you should you should say that because, um, you know, our, our architectural education was just the beginning. It's not 100% complete. Right. And what's interesting is when you uh, when you talk to people who went to other schools, like we we had, I would say past tense, we had a mutual friend that went to SCAD. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's funny because she and I had this discussions. She had a master's uh, actually from SCAD. And we talked about a few things, and it would come up often. Uh, and I, I would ask her, you didn't learn this in architecture school? She goes, no, we didn't, we didn't learn this. So what I would consider something simple like uh, doing a, you know, a wiring uh, plan and how to get two circuits on one outlet Oy. and how to plan a circuit. <laughs> you know, what I would consider simple stuff that we did – I think it was part of environmental tech or something like that, uh, you know, running gas lines. Because she got to a point where she was designing the, the fit-outs for uh, Paul Mitchell schools. Mm-hmm. And they were having a problem where they kept blowing the, the breakers. And I said, well, um, how many circuits do you have per station? And she said, well, we have five stations. I go, stop right there. You can't have that many circuits uh, uh, that many uh, outlets on a single circuit. You need each station probably needs two separate circuits. And so we often have these discussions. And, and uh, of course, uh, you can't cover every last thing in school, but it's really surprising how uh, the different schools focus more on the theoretical and less on the practical. And uh, I think where, where we went, I think there was a happy medium in between. And and for me, the practical is just as important. I mean, you can't just right. do half the study. Yeah. And and that's an interesting thing because there was there was something else that I was that I shared with you guys, and it was about self build and the maker movement. Um, and it talked about and I think self build we can say like, you know, like a little bit like um, a little bit of what Jose does now, which is design build. Right. Right. But it's more of an individual architect who is doing um, these type of work. It's more this disruptive architecture is what how they define it, um, which goes into like um, architecture without architects or like these um, disruptive um, buildings, disruptive not buildings but disruptive built elements. That are, you know, like maybe like a, a parking space turned into a, a little plaza mm-hmm. with tables and stuff like that. And the idea is that you don't need an architect to do that. Yeah. And makers you know what I'm can thinking about? You know what I'm thinking about, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Claudia? The tiny house. The, the, we exactly. Had the, tiny house. the tiny house. Exactly. And, and, and that's here we've exactly. come full circle. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. That's, and that's the thing because, you know, like now makers also think that they're architects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, it goes back into those things. It's like, whoa, like which. But it's you deal with see it? what it comes down to. It's it's the things that we're not learning in school that they that I think my clients really pay me for because somebody that's building the house by themselves doesn't necessarily know that you know don't put a regular outlet next to the sink because you're gonna. <laughs> Yeah, you're yeah. gonna blow up, and you have to be a GFI outlet, and you know you're gonna put arc protection, and there's all these code issues that I've learned by practicing. Mm-hmm. That I think that's where a lot of my value now comes into it. That yeah, somebody may be able to be put a bunch of two by fours together and slap drywall on it. You know, that's not the hard part, right? The hard part, the degrees, knowing all of the issues that can come from putting all this together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and then, you know, when you tie that back to the discussion, right. uh, you know, about the the skill of the architect and how it transitions in transitions well into the maker movement, um, and I think it becomes uh, more obvious mm-hmm. because it's not such a simple thing. Oh, I have a, you know, I have a saw, let's go make stuff. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think that that the value of the of the architect as far as design mm-hmm. uh, and as you mentioned when you're talking about these code issues you know these things that we're building are really machines and their or and or systems and they all work together mm-hmm. 
Well, and I would say, I think, along those lines, one of the first things, I think it, it goes about being a well-rounded architect. If you if you want to be the architect as a maker, you sort of got to be well-rounded. Know the technology, know the, the hand part of making things. Yes, yeah. Learn how to put something together. You know, how many people I graduated with that didn't have one of those things, didn't have, who could not, didn't know which end of a hammer to use. Yeah. Right. Or <laughs> then there was the other guy that didn't know anything about the computer. You know, I, grad- I graduated with people that never used the computer for anything. Did beautiful drawings by hand. But, you know, if you don't know how to use a computer, then it sort of limits you in this business. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, I think when you go looking for a job, the very first question they'll ask you is, can you use AutoCAD? Mm-hmm. Right. And now it's only gotten more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so... Um, I will say, I think one of the first things that I saw that dealt with this as far as architecture was concerned, if you and I just pulled it up, I couldn't remember the name of the movie. It's a movie called Life as a House. It's, oh, yes. It starts uh, Kevin Klein. Um, it's, it's sort of a movie that goes through the steps. You know, the guy worked at an office doing models, doesn't, doesn't want to learn the computer, and because of that, the firm no longer needs him. You know, a bunch of stuff happens. He decides to build his own house. So he clearly had the skills to build a house and all of these things. It's an interesting movie, so if people want to watch it, and sort of gives you a little bit of a peek into this transition that architecture has already gone through, and it's only gotten more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Okay, well, cool. Very um, cool. Seems like a good place to sort of wrap up the the conversation. Unless either of you guys has a final comment of some kind, Claudia. No, I think we're pretty good. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the maker movement is so open and so fluid that it, there's room for architects and there's room for everyone. Mm-hmm. Ray, any final comments? Uh, no, I think this horse has been beaten enough. Good. <laughs> 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 okay. All right, well, so let's move on to our next segment, which is the product of the week. All right, so let's talk about our product of the week. And uh, Ray, you put this one on here. It's a, a, a smartphone attachment. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. It's called the Eora 3D High Precision uh, 3D Scanning that uses your your existing smartphone to uh, process a 3D scan of an object. And, and I found it interesting because um, it really is selling you two two uh, components and the third component is your smartphone and what sets this and of course this is not the first um, you know scanning 3d scanning um, uh, machine uh, or tool that uh, that is available uh, inexpensively but but what it, it does set itself apart from the others is because it was deliberately designed to be small compact affordable and highly precise Mm-hmm. The affordable ones that uh, that were existing before this were not precise, and the precise ones were not affordable. Right. So I think it's a, a right now it's during uh, its Kickstarter campaign. Uh, they've got their pre-orders going on, and I don't remember uh, what the pricing is, and uh, I don't see that very. Wasn't it clearly. right around two ninety nine? Sounds about right. One ninety nine. It's uh, like yeah, yeah. So about three nineteen if you buy the turntable. The turntable, which is a nice feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you think about that, that's that is very little investment for a precise, a highly precise three D scanner. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, like in all products of the week, we are not affiliated with them in any way. Um, but uh, the videos that I saw was quite impressive. Now mm-hmm. I can't speak to it directly. I've never had one in my hand, but I like what it, what. It appears that it can do. I like the the, the promise that it has. Right. Yeah, no, I, I saw this, and I, I mean, I like it as well. I, I think, you know, there's a couple of things out there where you, you can't hold it. And, I mean, I think there's an app where you, you just move your phone and you take several pictures, but that thing is incredibly inaccurate. It, it like gives you a little blob for your model. Um, and some of the handheld devices that are out there that don't even bring a turntable... Um, I know the the higher end one is like three ninety nine, four hundred dollars, which supposedly gets a very good scan, but again, it's handheld. Yeah. Um, and it's more expensive than this. 
uh, some of the turntable ones I think also were in the $500 price range. Um, I know a low-end one came out not long ago that was supposed to be around 200 bucks, but again, it's also handheld, so who knows the accuracy of that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it looks good. I think it looks like a pretty promising product. The unfortunate part is it's hard to tell because at this point, nobody's had their hands on it yet. Correct, yeah. So, so I mean, I, I like the idea of it. Um, I like the idea. I... I I'm a little hesitant with stuff that uses my phone, <laughs> um, simply because my phone seems to always be out of out of space as it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wonder how. It's supposed to be very accurate, but how big a file size are you going to transfer from your phone to whatever you know the transfer process? I'd like to know a little more about. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's there was some information missing, yeah. and I'm not sure if that's on purpose or if they just haven't gotten that far. Uh, but one of the things that they that I didn't mention is that it can produce models with up to eight million data points, which <laughs> is, I, I mean, when you think about it, that is quite impressive. Yeah, that's quite the processing power. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about it, Claudia? Oh, uh, I think it's pretty cool. I was I was just reading some of the um, reviews, mm -hmm. and the Eora 3D is the missing piece of your Star Trek replicator <laughs> by fast company <laughs> so i thought that was kind of cool um yeah it's the the turntable is cool i like the fact that it's bluetooth yeah i want to meet with these people that already have a replicator apparently <laughs> they're just missing this part of it yeah uh there's also like a green laser that that also like that you can use when you i guess as a scanner Right, and then the turntable does three hundred and sixty degree scans. What's interesting also is the height, like the the width of the the weight, the width of the turntable is one hundred twenty five millimeters. I find it small, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I mean, there's like limits to this. Yeah, there's limits. And also, I wonder by weight too, like you know how much, like what, oh, like what if you, you overload the weight of it, it won't turn anymore. I'm sure. How how that would impact it? And when I say that is because you know, like there's a lot of artists. I have friends of mine that are um, artists, and they'll, you know, they, they may want to do something with their, um, you know, like the sculptures that they do. They're metal sculptures, and you know, some of them are heavy, really mm -hmm. heavy, but they're small enough too. You can put it in there. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I definitely I think it's pretty cool. I think for the price, it's not bad. I I always like it when. Um, costs keep bringing, you know, like when products keep bringing costs down, mm -hmm. um, it just makes it more of a. It improves it. I, I, you know, I think of like the next Eora 3D by somebody else that will mm -hmm. probably cost less than that even, mm -hmm. and that's a, for the consumer that's a great thing. Right. So I mean, I think I agree with both of you. Sounds seems like a good product. It'd be great once the Kickstarter funds and. And they deliver. It'd be great to see how it turns out. This brings up, and maybe this is a topic for a main topic, but uh, just like when regular flat scanners came out, and the issue of copyright came around, where do you, <laughs> where does this land for you guys in that? You know, because at this point, then you could, you could take somebody's property or somebody's intellectual property, let's just say, scan it and start reproducing it. Yeah, well, there is an issue there, isn't there? Yeah, and I don't know, maybe that's a topic for another day because it doesn't really, really, this is not the first 3D scanning um, product out there, so this is an issue that's out there to begin with. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think the use of it is always, as these things get cheaper, the use of it is always a, a worry or a discussion point. For sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and then when you think about it, is if you're scanning and they use like some toys that they were scanning there. Mm -hmm. uh, the the production of that toy is pennies. You know, it doesn't take mm -hmm. anything to make that toy. For you to three D print it would be expensive. So you might, you know, it's one of those things that maybe is so cost prohibitive that you don't really, you're not selling it. It's just for your own consumption anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but you know, I don't really know exactly what the the every user's intention will be. But it seems to me that if you're if you're dealing with these small things that are already made as inexpensively as possible, you're really only playing around. You're not really looking to steal or monopolize uh, somebody else's intellectual property. But it doesn't not to say that it won't. Yeah, I mean, like you know, you could yeah. you could 
you could scan a, a part that you know that it can cost a lot of money for you to order from somewhere because it's custom made from that particular company and now you have the ability to scan it and replicate it yourself mm-hmm. and that's yeah. an issue that's a really big issue because it doesn't have to be a toy it could also be like a material a tool could be i mean even if we go with the the, the the toy part of it right there's companies out there that pay for the rights to make collectibles of certain things let's uh-huh. just say that's an example and this is because i looked into this chappy from that movie chappy right it's a little robot guy this company paid i don't know how much it was to be able to manufacture a, a, a metal version of this guy and they sell it for a couple of hundred bucks uh-huh what stops somebody from buying that thing, scanning it, and then starting to print their own version of it to sell to somebody else? In plastic. In plastic. Yeah. So, you know, those those are sort of things that then become a slight issue in that sense. Yeah. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying where I lie in that, but, you know, it's, it's something to think about. It sounds to about. me like you are planning something. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> no. I do. I no, scanning, 3D scanning, and then having to, well, I mean, it's it's gotten much simpler than now. Like spousal privilege, spousal. <laughs> is what is what I, <laughs> I plead, I plead spousal privilege. I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> I was looking to buy the toy, but I know that I, I can't spend two hundred bucks for it. <laughs> That's what I know. That's where the spousal privilege is. <laughs> Uh, anyway, maybe that's a discussion for another day. Though. Hey. My wife didn't let me buy it, so therefore I... Forced me into committing crimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, that's uh, maybe a discussion for another day, but I think as far as a product, I like it. And, and I think it's sort of like the perfect type of product for a Kickstarter as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That should be a discussion we should have someday. <laughs> the products that appear on Kickstarter sometimes don't make sense. No. Yeah. Good Good find, Ray. Good find. Yep. Thanks. Cool. All right, well, let's go to the next segment, which is what are we working on? All right, so uh, let's uh, briefly get into what, uh, what are we all working on. What about you, Claudia? What are you working on reading or doing this weekend or this week? Uh, this week, I will hopefully will be working on a little bit of planning, some stuff, and like actual urban planning. Um, but right now, I'm just really happy and I'm trying to enjoy myself, enjoy my victory of statehood. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned this last time that I, I was going to be doing a lot of advocacy on DC for, for DC statehood, and I submitted testimony, and there was well received by my peers not so much by the council members um which is great though because i i I was able to really have good arguments with council members about it and um the reason why i'm bringing it up here is because um i'm a statehood champion now (laughs) that basically like christened me as a statehood champion dc statehood champion so i encourage anyone from other states that are listening to us to Think about DC statehood and try to learn a little bit more about it and feel free to contact me about it um, so that uh, perhaps we can like get you to become also a statehood champion. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we, we moved forward and we won a great um, battle for a, a representative, a democratic constitution for hopefully what will become DC, a state. The 51st state of... What's the name again? Well, actually, that was interesting because, you know, the, in the, among the bottle and today, amongst, what was it, like less than, like, 13 council members, they all decided that they didn't like the name that yeah, they had spent a year in in coming up with. So they quickly changed it mm-hmm. <laughs> right there and then within less than five minutes. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not going to sell, I'm not gonna sell on, gonna on sell a name it. yet because so we haven't decided one step forward, two step back. Exactly. Yeah. We had a name, now we don't. <laughs> well, what was the name? It was New Columbia. And because mm-hmm. um, that was in 1982, people, the, the people had decide, decided that. But today they decided that they were going to call it the state of Washington, D.C. 
Oh. Okay. That's <laughs> a bit of misleading because there's already a state of Washington. Yes. Exactly. And and there's Washington, D.C. already, right? Mm. Uh, which technically will still be a Washington, D.C., even though we become a state. Because Wasn't somebody pushing to call it Harriet Tubman or something like that? Or? Well, it's so D.C. stands for uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, so the Douglass Commonwealth. Okay. Uh, is what DC would stand for. So it would be state of Washington, Douglas, Commonwealth. <laughs> so, yes, oh, let's yeah. go back to the fact that we don't have a name right now. But You know what will be a cool name, though? Uh-huh. Home of Marion Barry. <laughs> yes, that and was... actually people would, <laughs> you, know, you don't that understand, pass. that probably would pass, and yeah, I, would... we are all happy about it because <laughs> yeah, they still he was a good love, man. They Do still they really? Yeah. Yes. His sons have gotten into politics as well. Oh, one of them passed away recently. Yeah, yeah so, unfortunately. But yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, so that's DC statehood. Check <laughs> it out. So that's what Claudia's been working on. What about you, Ray? What have you been working on? Um, what I'm working on is, uh, you you know, we went to the Maker Fair uh, mm-hmm. in uh, New York, and I took some some videos of some of the 3D printers, and I think you actually put up a video of uh, of some of the things at at mm-hmm. uh, Maker Fair. So uh, I've I had some footage and I was like you know what this will make a nice video so I'm gonna uh, be putting that up on Thursday, the oh, video okay. of just the 3D printers and and really mostly just the big 3D printers mm-hmm. because uh, I think I'm gonna call it you know the, the 3D printers of Maker Fair mm-hmm. uh, because uh, they were they were beautiful just to watch uh, you know it's you can get tied up very quickly into the the machines uh, and what they produce but. But the actual uh, running of the machine, the actual production, is quite a beautiful, uh, a beautiful movement, a beautiful dance, if you will, to see the machine as it executes these lines of code. So uh, I found it quite fascinating. I'm gonna put a video of that of that up on the uh, on my YouTube channel. And you may recall that I was giving away a sander. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a vintage sander. A vintage sander. I think it was from the forties or fifties. Yeah. So I finally saw that video. It's a very cool looking sander too. Yeah. Yeah. Which one? The first one or the second one? Uh, the the silver retro looking. Yeah. No, but I mean the video. I did the the one video announcing the giveaway, and I did another video picking the winner. Oh no! I saw the one announcing it. I ah. haven't seen the one that you picked the winner. Who, yeah, who won it? Uh, it was. Uh, oh, I don't know if I should I should give her name out, but but. Uh, uh, a young lady won the the uh, nice. the uh, Sandra, and I shipped it to her the next day. Very cool. Oh, yeah, I haven't heard nice. back from her, but I hope she's enjoying it. <laughs> Very nice, uh, and, and it's cool that it was a it was a a woman too. Yeah. You, yeah. I I, I don't know. I, I would have thought it'd be mostly men <laughs> in your YouTube channel. I, you know yeah. what's so weird is if you see that video of me selecting the winner. It yeah. was completely random. I wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. and it just happened to be the name I grabbed right out of the hat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah literally, really I used cool. an Wait, actual did, hat. Wait, did you use an actual hat? I used an actual hat. I wanted to be so cliche. <laughs> you know, I used an actual hat. But I threw a little comedy in there. If you, if you watch it, I think you'll, you'll get a chuckle. <laughs> I may have to check that out. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. Good, good. Um, uh, for myself, I've... I've actually been working on something I'm staring at right now, which is, what, like a year ago, Claudia and I bought these uh, old lockers that came out of this, uh, out of a, must have come out of a high school somewhere. We, we, we drove them all the way from Pittsburgh here. We ended up spending like 20 bucks on these lockers. They were really cheap, which is why we bought them. And uh, so now I've been going through the process of taking them apart, cleaning them, and I'm going to put them back together in a way that they work like a closet rather than just lockers. Something. Oh, did you already cut the legs off? Uh, that's the step this that's weekend. Next. Yeah, because I also have to cut off some of the some of the screws that hold it all together are a little rusted. So I'm gonna cut a few off as well that just don't want to budge. And uh, make sure you uh you put something on your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll. because uh, those discs can explode sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, okay. Okay, thank you, Ray. Well, then I'll definitely put something more than what I was planning. <laughs> yeah, they. But, yeah. Uh, as long as you're not in line with with the disc. If it does explode, you're fine. But uh, I, I always put a, at least goggles, but a face mask is better. And um, I'll do both. Keep your, <laughs> yeah, keep yourself, your face out of the line of the disc. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. should be fine. Yeah, should be all right. Then it's not that much that needs to be cut. I know, I know where Claudia will be while I'm cutting it. Now she's going to be inside hiding. 
<laughs> no, I'll have the phone ready. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I'm putting this. I'll, I'll put some photos up once it's done. I'm gonna. So we, I'm basically turning this lockers, this small lockers, into one big closet. Yeah. Coat closet type thing. Um, and then I'm also gonna be. By the time this airs, I'll put up the photos from our trip to the National Museum of African History and Culture. Did I get that right? Yes. I think I got that right, yeah. So I have a, I took a bunch of photos when we got in to the opening. We, we, we went, all three of us went opening weekend. And so I took a bunch of photos and I put those photos up both on a, on a blog post and a, a video of all the photos too because I can only put so many up on the blog post, so... So yeah, that'll be what I'm working on, and uh, and that's really the show for today. So why don't we tell everybody where they can find more about us? Why don't you go first, Ray? Uh, well, you can find me at uh, my YouTube channel. Um, we'll put the, a link to that in the in the notes, and my Facebook page, uh, Homemade Lathes, where uh, you know we discuss how to build uh, different homemade lathes uh, and. Uh, it's, we know we're almost at a thousand members. Oh, very cool. Uh, I'm surprised how quickly it's grown, and they're from all over the world. And they uh, every day somebody's putting up something interesting uh, that they're working on. So it's quite a, quite an interesting page. Yes, nice, nice, nice. nice. Claudia, where can people hear more about you? Uh, on Twitter, the City Ecologist, or also even the May Podcast on Twitter. Twitter mm-hmm. We'll be t- mm-hmm. tweeting a little bit more there, and also website thecityecologist.com. Cool. Yeah, and you can find me at City Aperture on Twitter, and that's also the name of my website, where I put a bunch of uh, uh, blog posts as well. So, cool. Uh, and you can find the the podcast. It's madepodcast.com, and the email is info at madepodcast.com, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that's the show for the week. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.